to Grace Life. My name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so excited that God brought you here this morning. We are going to be back in Romans 8. Just leave your Bible open to that scripture that Mike just read. And this is a uh, continuation of last week's message. So what I want to do is just pause right now and ask God's Spirit to, to come and to help us, to open our eyes, to see powerful things from this passage. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day to gather together, to unite under the banner of Christ, His redemptive love, His one-way, unconditional, never-giving-up, never-ending love, and then reminding ourselves, Lord, of what that means for us, how we can now live a life of gratitude and obedience to Him, not out of fear, not out of guilt, not out of shame, but out of love and thanksgiving. Help us to see this, uh, this fight, this commission from you, Lord, to, to kill our sin, to put to death the deeds of the body, to live in accordance with the Spirit, to set our mind on things above, to abstain from, from fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul. Help us leave here transformed, God. We ask and pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're still in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. We're going to focus on those two. This is a carryover from last week's message, Three Ways to Kill Your Sin. So this is Three Ways to Kill Your Sin, part two. It doesn't say a whole lot about sin killing in these two verses, but it does say that if you do it, you will live. And the implication is that if you are a Christian, or rather I should say it this way, since you are a Christian... This is a lifestyle for you. This is your daily habit. This is your daily practice. You are putting to death the deeds of the Bible. You are a killer. <laughs> I know we don't think of, of Christianity in, in, in terms like that. We think of uh, we're peacemakers. We turn the other cheek. We go out of our way to, to, to avoid relational conflict when at all possible. But this is the downright violent aspect. That's what that word actually means. That's why point one is we kill sin ruthlessly. We give it no quarter. We show it no mercy. We have no pity. We don't put kid gloves on. We don't show any compassion. We get downright violent. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Saving faith is a fighting faith. If you're a Christian, you are fighting, and you will fight until you take your last breath or until Christ returns. Then we can rest, enter the true rest. And I've told you before, chapter 8 has not one commandment in it in Romans 8, but there are many implications. And there's other places in the Bible that do command us to kill sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And there's many other places. So this is a powerful statement, and I want us to look at it again, just those two verses, 12 and 13 in Romans 8. We're going to focus and drill down right there. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, that's a powerful statement. He's saying... If you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live, and he means eternally. And it could sound like he's saying this is the cause of your salvation. He's not. He's saying this is an effect of your salvation. Because Christ has delivered your soul from hell and from judgment and from wrath, this is your daily lifestyle. You want to kill those things for which he died, right? The things that offend God and dishonor God and bring shame and reproach to his name and corruption to your life, you want to kill those things. So point number one was kill your sin ruthlessly. And ruthless is, is a beautiful word. It just means take no prisoners. Take no prisoners. Make sure it's all the way dead. Make sure it's not playing possum. Make sure it's not like one of those 80s thrillers where the, the villain is dead and he's laying down on the concrete and the hero takes a deep breath and walks away and then they come back and he's gone. He's still alive. He's still at it, Right? No, this means to, to be ruthless, to finish the job. Do it all the way. Kill your sin ruthlessly. And then we talked just for a few moments last week. I want to continue this. 
of something that I, I never saw until I studied this passage again. And don't you love the Word of God? It's, it's uh, always you see new and fresh application coming out. And he says here that we are debtors, not to the flesh. So if we're going to be ruthless in our waging war against sin, we have to get to the root of it. And, we, and it starts with the thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10 says, take every thought captive. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here. He's saying the way you think about your life, the way you think about temptation, the way you think about yourself matters when it comes to this warfare and this battle. And he says you shouldn't think of yourself as a debtor to the flesh. It's like I owe this to myself. We talked about that last week. Here's a quote. Sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity. Of self-pity. When you relax your guard... When you drop your weapons, when you take off your armor, you look around and you begin to say, wait a minute, why am I being so ruthless here? Nobody else is taking this sin and temptation as serious as I am. I'm tired. This battle is relentless. I feel exhausted. I feel weary. I feel like God's holding out on me. When's it my time to have some fun? That's being a debtor to yourself. That's, that's dangerous. When do I get my slice of the pie? I grew up on a farm, so I can never remember a time when I wasn't working, but one of my first official clock-in, clock-out jobs was when I was 16, and Sonic Drive-In hired me as a cook. If you were blessed enough to eat at the Sonic Drive-In in Northeast Arkansas in, you know, the early 90s, you're welcome. It's a great, it's a great restaurant, and it was, a, it was, it was great, a great place to work. I had good managers, and, uh, you know, after I'd been there a year, Everyone else is quitting. I'm the, I'm the one that's staying. I'm working hard. I'm putting in hours. Somebody needs a shift off. I take their shift. I get there early. I stay late. I take my job serious. Best burgers were when Tommy Clayton's on the grill, right? <laughs> but something happened one day, and I thought maybe this would illustrate to you, and if, I, if I've told you this story before, I apologize. It is kind of a funny story, and maybe helps illustrate what we're trying to, trying to make a point about here, this, this pity, self-pity. So, uh... I didn't know this, but superintendents, for lack of a better word, drive around. People that oversee districts of Sonic restaurants, they drive around secretly, like undercover, and they order food, and they just check out the quality of the food, cleanliness of the parking lot, you know, the punctuality of the car hop, all that stuff. So it wasn't a very busy day, and I actually saw out the window a car pull around, and they ordered tots with cheese. So in the mornings, we would get there. Whoever the cook is, you would help the manager. You would count out 12 tater tots, and every basket, put it in the walk-in freezer, and then when somebody ordered it, it's really easy. You, I'm giving you the, the secrets here to Sonic. Go in the walk-in, you take that basket, dump those 12 tater tots in the fryer, bring them up, slap a piece of melted cheese, a, a piece of cheese over it, put it in the steamer, bam, it's out. So this car ordered tots and cheese, and I did what I always do, cook the tater tots, put cheese over them, send it out. And then the car uh, just really quickly backed out after he got his order and pulled around and pulled into another booth and ordered tots with cheese. And I thought, that's weird, so I did it again. And then 10 minutes later, the manager walks back, and she said, Tommy, do you know that that car that just ordered tots with cheese was the superintendent of this district? And I said, ooh, no, I didn't know that. And she said, well, he wanted me to come and ask the cook, why were there 11 tater tots in both orders of tots with cheese? And I said, because I eat a tater tot from every order. <laughs> and she said, you're joking, right? I said, no, ma'am. Eat a, I ate a tater tot from her. She said, why? And I said, I, I don't know. I always have. Now, here's, here's the truth. Here's, here's the truth, okay? Here's why. Why did I steal food? Let's just put it in, in, in the light. Why did I steal food from Sonic? Here's why. Because I thought I deserved it. Because I worked hard. I was a good employee. I worked harder than anybody else at that restaurant. Maybe harder than the manager's right? Seriously, I took my job very, very serious. And here's what I felt. I felt overworked. I felt underpaid. I felt underappreciated. I felt hungry. <laughs> and I felt entitled. And that's why I stole a tater tot from every order. I don't know how many tater tots I stole in my two, two and a half, three years of working there, but it was a lot. And what did, it, what did it get me? It got me a demotion. I was about to get a raise. She told me, she said, I was about, you were up for a raise. And not only are you not going to get a raise, I'm going to write you up. And from that day forward, she had her eyes on me like a hawk. No matter what went in the fryer, I'm like, I'm not eating it, okay? You got me, you got me. But it's that kind of thought that leads to, the, to sin, right? I felt indebted to myself. I felt entitled. 
That was the thought that the Apostle Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive. And I mentioned some of those thoughts last week. I owe this to myself, right? That's, that's the culmination. I owe this to myself. Just one time won't hurt. I can handle this. I deserve this. God will forgive me. I'm not hurting anyone. This is a victimless sin. Is there such a thing as a victimless sin? There's always one victim of sin, right? You. Sin kills you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You only live once. Life is short. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody understands. That's debtor language. And this is really what Paul is saying here in this passage. Uh, really, is just he's, he's pointing back to Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And he's sticking to his theme that we live out what we are. We live out what we are. Identity comes before activity. And we were in the flesh before we were saved, and now we're in the spirit. But here's the problem. We live in a body, and this body has memories, muscle memories, right? And this body has impulses, it has urges, it has desires, it has passions that well up. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, he uses the word body, soma in Greek. You, ha- you live in this body, but you're living in the Spirit in a, in a fallen body. So how does that work? That's what he's telling us to do. This is, this is how you flesh that out. And he's going back to... Verses 11 through 13, or 12 through 14, says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. In other words, he's saying, you don't have to obey these impulses, these urges, this animalistic feeling instincts that are so powerful and so mighty and they seem to be so controlling. You don't have to obey them. In fact, you've been equipped to slaughter them, to slay them, to kill them. They have no more absolute power over us. All that our bodies can do now is make these suggestions. Suggestions to us, and when we're in the spirit, we kill those, right? We don't just disregard sin and these thoughts. We take them captive. We kill them. We punish them. What is, the, what is he talking about with the flesh? Well, you remember in chapter 8, verse 7, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed is it able to be. So living according to the flesh is just saying no to God, saying no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live life my way. I'm going to do things my way for my reasons I'm my own king, I'm the captain of my own soul, I'm the master of my own fate. I answer to no one but myself. God's not going to tell me what to do. He's not going to tell me how to use my body. He's not going to tell me who to sleep with. He's not going to tell me how to spend my money. He's not going to tell me how to think, how to respond to conflict. He's not going to tell me how to suffer, what websites to go to, how to eat, how to view work, how to view education, how to use social media. How to view sex, money, relationships, politics. That's what the flesh says. No to God, yes to me. And Paul's saying, if you live that way, you're dying. The verb tense is not that you will die one day, but you're slowly dying, and then one day that will culminate in judgment, eternal judgment. He's saying you don't have to live that way now that you're in Christ and you're in the Spirit. You've been equipped, you've been empowered to put, to put that to death, to slaughter it, to show it no quarter. And one of the ways we do that is to ask the question, I'm not in debt to this flesh. What has it ever done for me anyway? Have you ever asked that question? What has your flesh ever done to benefit you ever? Nothing. It destroys you. It kills you. It deceives you. It tricks you. The Bible always talks about these desires, these epithumeos, and it's usually accompanied by by the, the adjective deceitful. We have these deceitful desires. They always trick us. They always lie to us. That's why we have to flip the script. We get into it a little bit later in Romans 8. What has your flesh ever done for you? So why in the world would you feed it and indulge it and strengthen it? There's another story in the Old Testament. I love using illustrations from the Old Testament. 
In 1 Samuel 15, Saul was the first king of Israel. The people chose him, right? He's head and shoulders above the rest. That's their king. And God gave him one job, one job to do. He says, Saul, slaughter all of the Amalekites. Leave nobody alive. Kill everything. Destroy the village. Kill the animals. Kill it all. I want them wiped off the face of the planet. I'll preach another sermon another day like, what in the world? Why would God tell somebody to do that? That seems so ruthless. It seems so. Another time for another day. Because those little Amalekites are going to grow up into big Amalekites. And are going to threaten and jeopardize Israel's way of life. Their faithfulness to Yahweh. Which they did. But anyway, God told Saul through the prophet Samuel, go and destroy all the Amalekites. Leave nobody alive. But you remember the story. Saul spared the best animals, the best sheep, the best oxen. All his men were hungry. They wanted to eat. And he even spared the king, the king of the Amalekites, King Agag. Can you imagine? God tells you to kill everybody and you save the best animals and you spare the king. It's like, what in the world are you doing? And so there's this really intense verbal confrontation between this prophet Samuel and the, and the king, Saul. They had a nasty argument. And he says, why didn't, you, why didn't you do what God told you to do? God's going to rip the kingdom away from you. And then Saul turned to the pagan king, excuse me, Samuel turned to that pagan king, Agag, the one that Saul let live, and he said, bring, bring me Agag. This is, this is, you can't make this stuff up. This is the most interesting story in the Old Testament to me. And so Agag comes to the prophet. He's been overhearing this conversation. And Agag, feeling the threat, says to the prophet, surely the bitterness of death is past. You remember this? He's saying, hey, look, the war's over. <laughs> I'm defeated, guys. I'm no threat. I'm nothing. You know, you're, you're the victor. You're the conqueror. You won. I lost. Let's shake hands and we'll go about our life and I'll never bother you again. And you remember, do you remember what the prophet Samuel did? It says he took a sword and he hacked Agag to pieces. That's what it says. In the, in, in the, I think in the, the King James it says he hacked Agag to pieces. Why? Because God said destroy him, all of them, kill him, get rid of him. He did that. And I think that's, that's an illustration. That's a real story. It's not a parable or an allegory. It's a real story. But it points toward what we're supposed to do, ruthlessly eliminate, ruthlessly eliminate these urges, these sins. When they present themselves, kill them, weaken them, starve them out, and, and put them to an excruciating death. So here's the question here. How ruthless are you? How ruthless are you in eliminating your sin? I'm your pastor. That's why I'm preaching my second sermon. Really, it's a continuation of the sermon because I feel like the Spirit of God wants us to think about these things. And ponder these things together as a church family. What are you doing to ruthlessly eliminate the sins that are manifesting themselves in your life, especially the sins and deeds of the body? What are you doing about that? What are we giving up? Everybody wants to change the world around them, right? Nobody wants to change themselves. It's so easy to critique the things. Well, it's this, and you know, women dress immodestly. I hear that argument from guys a lot. Well, what are you doing about you, about the urges, about the impulses? J.C. Rowell wrote a book called Thoughts for Young Men, and he talks about it's much easier to uproot a sapling than an oak tree. And if this is a way of life, and it's habitual, and it's relentless, that's our second point we'll get to in a minute, then we're to be doing it every day, and we're to be doing it early right? As soon as you become a Christian, you're doing this. If you, if you neglect things, they grow up, and they become habits, and then they become characters, and then they become destinies, right? Ruthlessly, it means honestly. Don't lie to yourself. When I graduated seminary, for once, I had time to watch TV, and Netflix was brand new to me then, and there was a series that came out. I, I wrote a lot in seminary. I worked for an organization where I did copy. I wrote copy, and I loved it. I was just coming into my, to my gift of writing, and I loved it, and there was a series that was about a writer, a professional writer. And I started watching the series. I started binging on it. And it started out like most series do, really innocent, you know, nothing dark, nothing bad, no nudity, no violence, no graphic language, nothing like that. And I got hooked into the plot. Am I the only one? <laughs> it hooked me, hook, line, and sinker. I got hooked in this. And then again, a little bit, a little bit edgy, a little bit dark, a little bit of language, 
I'm just being honest. I'm your pastor. I want to be honest with you. And it, and it hooked me in, man, this whole plot. And I found myself season one, season two, and I'm like, just the Spirit of God one night. I think Sarah was in bed, and I'm watching it, and there was like a really edgy, and I'm like, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this? I just graduated seminary for pastoral training, and I'm watching this garbage. What in the world am I doing? And I, Sarah got up the next morning. I said, honey, I need to confess this to you. I'm so sorry. I don't know, I don't know why. It just... But, but you know what? It was scandalizing me. That's what it was. It was offending me. It was thankful the Spirit of God was alive and awakened me to that. I'd become so numb to it and so dead to it, and the Spirit of God said, I love him too much to let him continue to do this. Listen, that series was affecting a lot of, it was affecting the way I viewed myself as a man. It was affecting the way I viewed women. It was affecting the way I viewed my job. It's so easy for all these forces the forces that are out there, we, we take them in, we, we feel weak, and there's an on-ramp, and all these things get into our head and get into our heart, and they're changing us, and we don't even feel it. We've been taken prisoner, and these vices are like clamping down on us, and before we know it, we've gone so much further than we ever intended to. That's why there is a verse in the Bible in Mark chapter 9. We went through the gospel of Mark. You, some of you may not have been there when we went through this, but I mentioned the, the Matthew 5 version, but this is it's Mark 9. Listen to this. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with no hands, excuse me, two hands going to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. You know what the word is there for if your hand causes you to sin? It's just hand scandalizo. Does that word sound familiar to you? Scandal. If your hands are scandalizing you, cut them off. If your feet are scandalizing you, cut them off. If your eyes are scandalizing you, tear them out. That's just, I think the King James Version says if causes you offense, offends you. I felt scandalized. And I think, you know, your hands, your feet, your eyes, that's, that, that views a comprehensive worldview, but also what you look at, where you go, what you do. All of life. That's why this is talking about ruthless. This is ruthless. It's an ongoing struggle. It's very personal. What is causing you to be scandalized? Can I ask you that as your pastor? ruthlessly ask yourself that question. Confront yourself. What is scandalizing me? What is taking me further away from Christ? When you're doing this or watching this or listening to this or going here, ask yourself this question. What kind of person is this turning me into? What kind of person am I becoming because of these things? Am I becoming a monster? When they go and, and search the web browser history of serial killers, they always find the same thing. You know what it is, don't you? It's not puppies and kittens and, and rainbows. It's like violent graphic pornography that started really small and grew out of control. And then it affected them. And, and they all say the same thing. I, I can't believe it, it, it got this far. It always started really small and it turned them into something. I'm not blaming it all on pornography. I'm just saying it contributes. There's all these forces. In here, there's receptivity, and out there there's temptation and pressure. I was alive when Woodstock 99 came about. Now, I'm going to warn you right now, be careful. Sometimes I'll use an illustration, people go and be careful looking, looking at anything on, online about Woodstock 99, okay? You can just imagine wh what went on there. But they, they thought it would be a great idea to celebrate the 30-year anniversary of Three Days of Love, Peace, and Music, right? The one that happened in 1969. It was peaceful. It was up north. It was in like a Hobbit Shire type. There was grass. There were trees. There was shade. People were peaceful, supposedly, allegedly. You know, I wasn't alive then, but what I've been told. So they thought, you know what? Let's, let's do a 30-year reenactment of that. And so they did, and it turned into four days of carnage. It was an epic fail. It was a disaster. It was a dumpster fire. Literally, it was a dumpster fire. People died. Women were raped. People were hurt. Things were set on fire. Things were broken. It was a disaster. 
And it was funny, I was reading an article and it was like, how did this happen? What happened? Do we ask ourselves our, that question sometimes when we, when we fall, when we sin, when we feel like we violated God's commandments and we sit down and we're like, what happened? How did this happen? And it was just interesting, all the things. Finally, a cultural analysis came in and said, guys, do you not see this? Do you not see why this happened? And he talked about it was terrible planning. They did not allow water bottles in there. If you were to bring, of course, they were trying to stop alcohol from coming in so they could sell their alcohol and make money and all that. And so they stopped any liquid at all. You couldn't bring water in. You could buy water for $4 a bottle, which would, would have been the equivalent of $7 a bottle today, right? And it was hot. It was over 100 degrees, so no water. It's 100 degrees. The outhouses filled up and were overflowing. There were poor facilities. It was a decommissioned Air Force base, so it was basically concrete and asphalt. 400,000 people on a tarmac, basically. Excessive heat, inadequate security, and then the provocative music. There was a 22-year-old who said, I sat in the executive meetings, and I'm listening to all the bands they were bringing in. And I raised my hand, and I said, you guys, you're wanting to redo the, the hippie movement? Have you listened to this music of the 49 or 50 artists they invited? He said, do you know how provocative and like charged and violent and aggressive this music is going to make these people? And he said, they looked at me like I was the, uh, like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. And so they invited all these bands. One band got up and, and, and played a song called Break Things. Now, you got young people out there, no supervision, inadequate security. Most of them are half drunk. And the, the culture at that time, they were talking about that, you know, the number one blockbuster movie was Fight Club, okay, <laughs> and some other sexually explicit movies. So that's the cultural thing going on. You got, and then the song was Break Things. What do you think those people did when that song was played? They broke things. Oh, yes, they did. They broke arms. They broke noses. They broke collarbones. They broke laws. And then another band came up and did the, a cover for the Jimi Hendrix song, Fire. And they thought it would be a good idea to hand out 10,000 or 100,000 candles uh, to protest gun violence. What do you think those people with those... I don't know, I'm not laughing because it's not funny, but it's like, what did they expect was going to happen when they sang a song called Fire and Break Things and gave people candles? They, they lit the place on fire. It was crazy. And I only say that to say this. Um, I think that's a good illustration of us walking circumspectly, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. When we're in a battle, we're in a war, we're mindful of what these forces are doing to us. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to go there. These are my best friends. I had this social media. What are, those things, what are those things doing to your mind and to your heart? Are they helping you? Are they helping you become the kind of person that is honoring and exalting Jesus Christ and equipping you to put to death the deeds of the body? Or is it turning you? Is it, is it weakening your resistance? It's doing one or the other. It's doing one or the other. I've never heard of a riot happening at a classical music concert. I know that's probably not a fair comparison, but these things matter. Okay, point two. And we're going to finish today, I promise. Point two. Point two is relentlessly. You may to get that off there. There we go. Point two, relentlessly. And let me give you the reason why I use this word. It's because, verse 12 or verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is, let me geek out for a minute here, put my nerd hat on. Greek is a beautiful language, and there are verb tenses in that language, like there are every language. And that verb tense is the present active indicative. And it means ongoing, habitual, lifestyle, continuous, relentless is what this means. This is not... You just, you just kill this thing one time and it's done. You'll never see it again. You pull this, listen, you go in your garden, you pull these weeds out one time and they're, they're gone forever. You'll never see them again. Right? Right? Wrong. Wrong. It's called de-weeding, I-N-G, <laughs> your garden. You're always doing it. Do you, you take the garbage out one time. It's a one and done, right? You mow the lawn once and you're done, right? You change that diaper once and you're, all of life, thank you, all of life points to this. All of life. Why would we expect this to be any different? This is a relentless struggle. It's relentless. If you stop this, 
which is what your flesh wants you to do, which is what your enemy wants you to do, if you stop and take your armor off, this is what John Owen said. He was a Puritan that wrote the book, The Mortification of Sin. He said, "Do you, mortify just a fancy word for kill. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then he also said this. And I didn't even write that in my notes and I can't read it from here. So you can just read that. <laughs> He's Here. I won't fall off of this. Sin is always acting. Is that true? If sin is always acting, what do you always have to be doing? Killing, that's right. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God, which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? There is not a day but sin fails, foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon. It will always be so while we live in this world. Sin will not spare for one day. There is no safety but in a constant warfare for those who desire deliverance from sin's perplexing rebellion. This is relentless. It is continual. It's continual. Listen, I, I just love, man, that I feel like I'm in good company when I'm reading the New Testament, where, I, where I'm reading what Paul says about who will deliver me from this body of death. I'm doing things that I don't want to do what I'm doing, I'm hating. The things I want to do, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to do those things. I feel like I'm in good company. And Paul is saying, basically, don't ever let anybody paint this higher plane of Christian existence where you just let go and you let God and you drift there. You don't have to do anything. You just become more and more mature, more and more loyal and devoted to Jesus, more disciplined. It doesn't happen that way. It's a fight. It's a fight. That's why we are called in the, in, in the Bible, some of the metaphors and analogies and illustrations for Christians that we're soldiers, we're farmers, we're athletes. I grew up on a farm. I know all about that. <laughs> just be tired as a farmer and just give up for a month on your crops and see what kind of yield you have at the end of the harvest. Or if you're an athlete, just give up with training. Chief, what would happen if we give up training? <laughs> The boxer that says, you know what, I'm sick of this, man. I'm going to eat ice cream and just forget it for a month. And then the big fight comes. Or the soldier who says, I don't need basic training. I don't need boot camp. I don't need this tracking up the mountain and down the mountain. Who needs all that? That's for the birds. The Bible's calling us to an all-out ruthless and relentless war against sin. And we're not doing it alone. We're doing it by the Spirit. You can't do it unless the Spirit fills and empowers and equips you and he has and he is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world we're not at a disadvantage here at all <laughs> we're not alone we're not weak we have control god's given us that power that's what romans 8 is all about it's relentless it means that you do it today and tomorrow and the next day and until we die so this is an encouragement. You can do this. You, you, you will do this, is what Paul is saying. And there's also a challenge to not accept the evil that we see in ourselves, in the sins, in the habits, to not accept them. You know, when I, when I own our own house, and I mean, do we ever own our house? I'm still making payments. Maybe you are too. But I got a mortgage. I'm not renting. I'm paying. I'm making mortgage payments. I don't know, something changed when that happened, man, when you're actually mowing your lawn and you're installing your floors. You know, you're more careful with things, just like when it's not a rental car. Anyway, so when I would see an insect uh, in our house, I would panic because, oh, this is, this is my house now. I would see there may be termites there, but I see ants all the time in our house, especially in the rainy seasons. They're always trying to come in and find, you know, a dry place and food. So when I see, I expect to see ants now. I expect to see them, but I do not accept them into my house. They are an intrusion, and I kill every single stinking ant that I see, especially the ones that I know are scouts. You know there's scout ants? There's a whole art and science to this. You see an ant by itself, and it's like going all around. You know what it's doing? It's a scout, man. It's, it's, it's checking. It's a spy. It's checking out where the good food is. Man, I smash that thing and like flush it down the toilet so it can't emit any pheromones. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm relentless. Every ant I see is going to die, just like every cockroach I see is going to die. I expect to see them, the ants at least. Uh, but when I do, I'm not going to accept them. I'm going to kill them. And it's the same way. This is relentless. Relentless. And the third way is relationally. And again, we, we, go, to the, we go to the grammar here. This is Paul's writing to a church. And when he's saying, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, it's, uh, it's like the southern way of saying you ends or you all. If by the Spirit you guys... <laughs> He's talking to the church. He's saying you do it together. I just, me- I just mentioned this point last week. We do it ruthlessly. We do it relentlessly. We do it relational. This is in the plural tense. It is impossible to do everything that the Bible calls us to do within a, an hour and a half window on a Sunday morning. The Bible calls us to walk in the light, but it never calls us to do that together. Excuse me, alone. <laughs> Never calls us to do that alone. We do it together. We do it better together. We're stronger together. That's what the, the church in Acts chapter 2, you read that, and it says they devoted themselves together to these things every day. They encouraged, they exhorted, they, they challenged, they, they corrected one another every day. They went from house to house, eating their food with, with gladness and sincerity of heart, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching, to the breaking bread of prayers, And it says the people were in awe. That was the lifestyle of the early church. There was this camaraderie. And so I I was advocating for, you know, why why do we do the things we do at this church? How serious do we take this? Well, we gather on Sundays. And we also have community groups. We've taken a break for the summer. They're about to start up after Labor Day. And I think we're going to offer six community groups this year. All over Volusia County, all over the... Quad City area, so that you can do what the Bible says to do. All these 55-something-odd one-anothers, counsel one another, confess your sin to one another, bear one another's burdens, so on and so forth. And we also offer men's gatherings and women's gatherings. We also offer Fifth Wednesday prayer groups. We have one at the end of this month on the fifth Wednesday of August at 6.30 p.m. We gather together in a house And we pray together, and some people have fasted. We don't talk about that because you're not supposed to know, let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. But after that prayer, those that have fasted, we all break bread together. We break break our fast. Why do we do all those things? Because we need one another. You and I are one of the greatest means of grace God has given us. He gave us His Spirit to fill us. He gave us His Son to redeem us. He gave us His Word to equip us, right? He gave us the church, one another, to help us. We need one another's help. Lone rangers or dead rangers? We see this camaraderie everywhere else. One of my kids, for the first time, is playing Pop Warner sports. And so I have to take them to practice every day. And it was just interesting, man. I've never done this before. This is my first time. I guess I'm like an official soccer dad, maybe. I don't know. And I took my son to his practice, and I see there's all these Pop Warner coaches out there. There's camaraderie. They're conversing together. They're talking about their pride. What are you doing? What are you doing? And then there's the players out there. They're playing together. These kids that have never met each other, and after their first two-hour practice, it's like they're best friends. And then there's the parents sitting in their chairs, fighting the ants, right, together. There's camaraderie. Like they're all better. They're all united together. You see this in the world. Often it's not done well. Often it's done poorly. I was reading one of my favorite books is uh, Band of Brothers, and there's, there's a quote in there by Stephen Ambrose. He talks about, he talks about just in the, what these men would do for one another. Let me, let me read this. He said, they experienced a closeness unknown to all outsiders. Comrades are closer than friends, closer than brothers. Their relationship is different from that of lovers. Their trust in and knowledge of each other is total. They got to know each other's life stories what they did before they came into the army, where and why they volunteered, what they liked to eat and drink, what their capabilities were. On a night march, they would hear a cough and know who it was. On a night maneuver, they would see someone sneaking through the woods and know who it was from a silhouette. And then he talked about just the camaraderie in battle. They would literally give their life for one another. And so the other thing that we're doing at Grace Life, and I mentioned this last week, is we're offering discipleship groups. We call them D-groups. And that's a group of Three or four, probably no more than five, because it, it's rendered less effective the more people you get. 
but it's the same gender, men with men, women with women. They form these little, I guess, fight clubs where you get together and you encourage one another and you walk in the light and you confess your sin, James 5, 16, and you pray together and maybe you memorize scripture together. You just do life together. It's happening. It's happening in this church. I have never been more encouraged in my time here as the lead pastor than I have been this summer to see community groups took a break, but all these little groups started forming, and you guys are getting together, and it's not just, you know, if we like moonlight walks on the beach and sushi and, you know, roller skating. No, it's some of you have nothing in common but Jesus, but you're finding each other, and you're saying, I need you. Will you help me? Will you walk with me? Will you help me see Christ more clearly and help, help me see my sin so that I can kill it? I love that. Some of you are taking walks together, memorizing scripture together, and reading books together, Christian books. It's awesome. It's awesome. Ecclesiastes 4 says, Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So often we prefer a cocoon to a community. We want to isolate ourselves because we're so scared of the risk that it takes. But listen, guys, risk, everything good involves risk. Sin's power turns us inward. In the dark, sin thrives on anonymity and secrecy and darkness and privacy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him last week. He was a German pastor that was just incredible. He stood against Hitler when all the other German pastors gave in the temptation because they were afraid of the Gestapo, and he stood. He stood against Hitler. He said, no, we take all the Bible. We're not editing it. We're not changing it. I'm not kowtowing to what Hitler says, and he started a secret underground seminary, and he wrote a book about it called Life Together, and there's this big section on James 5.16, confessing your sins to one another, and he talks about the power that he saw exhibited when men would confess their sin to one another, and this is, this is not like a Roman Catholic, you go to a priest who's in this booth, you don't know him, no, this, these are men that did life together. And they're being honest with one another and walking out in the open with one another in the light where Jesus is. And this is what he says. Sin demands to have a man by himself. Did I put this up here? Here we go. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he or she becomes entangled in it. The more disastrous is that isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, you could say unconfessed, sin poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. You know what he's saying? You can come and worship together and sing praise songs and never do what James 5.16 says and be trapped and entangled in this disastrous life cycle of sin. And you will stay there, he says, until you do this. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. Ray Ortland, his church in Nashville, he was talking about the time. He got a bunch of men together in a room. He said, all right, everybody find somebody and tell that person the worst thing you've ever done. And he said, man, just everyone froze, kind of like you just did. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm saying Ray, Ray was getting ruthless. He was saying, I got to get these men together, and I got to get them honest and comfortable with one another, confessing sin. Is it awkward? Sure, it's awkward. Is it necessary? Well, the Bible commands it. The Bible commands it. And that's just one aspect of Having, having somebody you can trust. I wonder how many people in this congregation have somebody you can go to and say, look, brother, or look, sister, I really need to confess this to you. I had a guy that doesn't go to this church. We went to seminary together. He was on my back porch. I don't know. It's been, been years ago. And he looked at me. We were, we were laughing. We were laughing about something, being silly. And he looked at me. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, man, I need to confess something to you. I thought he was going to tell me he, like, stole a book or something. I don't know. And he confessed like a, a private, secret, sexual struggle that he was having. And it blew me away. And it blew, we just both stopped in our tracks. He wept. I wept. We prayed together. He said, I've never told anybody else this but, but my wife. And I felt like the Spirit wanted me to tell you. I said, bro, that took a lot of courage. That took a lot of faith. And we prayed together. And we've been in contact. 
How's that going? I've been praying for you. God put you on my heart this week. I, it's, it's my feeling and opinion. I think that's very rare. I think that's a rare thing for Christians because we're so afraid. We, we have not gotten the security that the gospel gives us. You know, the gospel tells me my judgment day was 2,000 years ago on the cross. I do not have anything to prove to anybody. I mean, I wish I could believe that all the time in my saner, more Christ-like moments I do. I don't have anything to prove to you, which is why we can show up in Crocs and socks, Mike, right? I have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose, nothing to fear. That means I can be real, I can be honest, I can be vulnerable, I can walk in the light, I can confess my sin, I can ask for prayer. And that means, too, when you see, when you see me going down a dangerous path, you've got a headhunting license to come to me and say, hey, look, man, we need to talk. That happens in D groups, mostly. I mean, it should happen in your marriage, obviously, if you're married. Your, your spouse should have a headhunting license. Nothing's off limits. When I come home, I give my wife my phone sometimes, and part of it's just to catch up with ministry. But she can look at any text message I've sent or received, emails. Okay, one more thing, and then we'll be done, okay? <laughs> you guys are so patient with me. Just get up here and feel like I'm rambling sometimes. Are you guys tracking with me today? Okay, okay. Hey, praise God. All right. You know, the Great Awakening in America in the mid-1700s, two guys came over, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They grew up in Britain. They came over here and they started preaching the gospel, and God was converting thousands, thousands of people. And it was phenomenal. And we hear that. And Jonathan Edwards was a part of that too. And we hear about that, but the part that we miss is how that revival continued. You know how it continued? Check this out. Wesley came over, and he's the founder for the Methodist movement, and the reason he got that name, the Methodist, is because they had a method. People would get confer- converted, and then John and Charles Wesley, his brother, and Whitfield, they would put these people into what they called little societies, 10 or more people, probably more like a community group than a D group, but they would divide those people up into classes and bands, and they would say, get together each week and just tell people what's in your heart and help one another and pray for one another, and guess what those people did? They objected to it. Because they had been brought up on, in religion where you, it's private. Religion's pri- a private thing. I don't need to talk about my heart. That's none of their business. You ever think that? Hey, this is my private life. It's none of your business. Oh, really? Well, we're a family, aren't we? If you're a family, it is your business. They said religion is a private matter. I want to come and hear the word preached. I want to come and worship in the sanctuary. But I do not have to sit around and talk and spill out my feelings and all this sort of thing. Religion's a private matter. So John Wesley simply said this in response. Check this out. You're going to like this. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another, James 5.16. Exhort one another daily so you're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness, Hebrews 3.13. Teach and admonish one another in wisdom, Colossians 3.16. Stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Now, if you do not meet to do these things, when are they going to get done? That's what Wesley said. So, so I would issue that encouragement and challenge to you. When are these things getting done? Because right now they're not getting done. This is just a monologue, man. This is like one-way communication. Some of you talk back to me, and I like it. You know, amen, thank you, both of you. <laughs> um, but we... We need to have a group log. You need to be able to respond. Like, hey, are you sure about that? It's, it's, we, we need a, a, a platform, an environment, a community where your ideas can be tested and challenged. Has, has anybody ever said something really weird to you about the Christian faith? You're like, that doesn't sound right. I don't know about that. That sounds dangerous. That sounds off. That sounds unbiblical. Man, in, in biblical friendships and in D groups, we, we, we have views. Have views of, of, of biblical masculinity that may be warped, may be off, may be... Maybe toxic. And it's little groups like that have been the times I have felt like my Christian faith was refined. Refined through the, through the refiner's fire. And that I could see myself clearly. I could see Christ more clearly. And I could take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ together. Okay, this is the very last thing. This will take one, one or two minutes tops, okay? So... Um, 
The next sermon that I'm going to preach is going to be about how you flip the script. And this is, we're bringing in by the Spirit. What has the Spirit done to help us slaughter our sin? The whole rest of this chapter is about that. Um, but I want to give you a little hint right now. So often when we talk about killing our sin, it's just like, don't go here, don't go there. And that's a part of it. Know yourself. Know that you're going to be very vulnerable. If you're a recovering alcoholic, you shouldn't go to a bar, right? If you're a kleptomaniac, you shouldn't go to a flea market, so on and so forth. But there's another dynamic, and it's how we talk to ourselves. Sometimes if we're faced with the temptation, we say, you know what, this is going to cause me trouble, I shouldn't do it. I'm going to feel bad, about, I'm going to feel bad in the morning if I do this. Or this could harm my reputation. That's one way people talk themselves out of sinning. It's the weakest way. It may be effective, but you know what you're using? You're using fear as a leverage. You're using fear. I'm, I'm scared to do this because it, will, it won't bode well for me. We're, we're letting the law. That's, that's, taking your, that's using the law to do what the Spirit and the Gospel have promised to do. And John, Owens, John Owen in his book Mortification of Sin wrote about this. He talked about preaching the gospel to yourself, and I know that's become cliche, just like, well, yeah, pray about it, be warm and filled, prayers and thoughts are with you, but it's not cliche. This is a powerful reality to killing sin and living the Christian life. This is what Owen said, one of the English Puritans. He said, this is what he does when he's trying to kill sin. What have I done? What love, mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make? To the Father for His love, to the Son for His blood, to the Holy Spirit for His grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus Christ? Do I account communion with Him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? Do you hear how he's arguing and reasoning with himself? Instead of saying, I'm going to feel bad in the morning if I do this sin. He's saying, how can I do this and sin against God? That's what Joseph said. You know when Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. Do you know what he said? How can I commit this great evil and sin against God? He didn't say, well, if I do, I may get caught and we'll both be in trouble. He didn't say that. He may have thought that. That reminds me of, the, of one of the first Christian martyrs in the first century. His name was Polycarp. He was the last Christian that sat at the feet of a living apostle. The apostle John taught Polycarp. And he was 86 years old, and the Roman governor put out a bounty on his head for all the Roman soldiers to go and find this Christian teaching in the villages the gospel. And they found him. He was hiding. He went from place to place hiding because he said, I'm not going to be a willing martyr, but if they catch me, then that would be different. They caught him. They caught him, and his captors started interrogating him. And this, this is what they said. They threatened him with wild animals. The proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. Man, I just love that. You don't hear any self-pity there, do you? That didn't work. So they threatened him with fire, saying they would burn him at the stake, which means alive, unless he rejected Christianity and recanted of his beliefs. Here was what Polycarp said in response. The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment, but why do you delay? Come and do what you will. And then he said this, 86 years. They said, recant, reject Jesus. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Is that the right way to let the gospel, not the law, help you fight and kill your sin? How can I sin against such mercy? How can I sin against such love? You know, this says that we're debtors. We're not a debtor to God's justice, are we? Thank God we're not. That's settled. Jesus settled our debt to divine justice, but we are a debtor to his love. We are a debtor to his love. We see Jesus on that cross like Agag, hacked to pieces, bloody, violent, ruthless, destroyed, eliminated. Why? So that you and I could say no to sin and could say yes to Jesus. We can do that together. We can do that as a church. We can come alongside one another and help one another. Those are three ways to kill sin. Ruthlessly, relentlessly, relationally. And I hope, I hope we're all doing that.
We've got some exciting things in the work. Community groups are going to be starting soon. You can go on, that, on our new website that Megan created. You can go to the top tab under Gather. Yes, you can go to Gather and you can find discipleship groups. You can click on that. You can scroll down and Matt, our discipleship pastor, will help you gather. I think some of you have submitted some things. We wanted to wait one more week and let all the people request it and then pair you up with people that can help you do what this passage is calling you to do. Guys, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for being here. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. Our worship team is going to come and play. And we always have what we call a Selah song, a song of reflection. And this is where you ponder and reflect on what you've heard. And you do, I used to hear it growing up in church, you do business with God. You talk to the Lord about what you heard. And, and then we, we, we call people to the back for prayer. We have a prayer team back there. And here's what we're going to start doing. We're going to start extending our prayer time. That doesn't mean we're going to stay here all day. It just means even after church is over, some people just find it very awkward to get up and go to the back for prayer. But when the crowd thins, we dismiss. They want to hang out. They want to talk to somebody. They want to pray. So our prayer team is going to remain. And we're going to have an extended time of prayer. But what I want to ask you to do today is you don't have to just respond if you've been convicted in a sermon. If you need prayer for for healing, for sickness, you want to confess a sin, you, you want to praise God and thank God for a deliverance that happened, you just want to share that with somebody, uh, we're offering that time, we're doing it in the back, because it's harder to have little pockets of prayer everywhere, it's, you know, people get interrupted and we're loud, so we're going to offer that in the back, but I want to just ask you today, I want to ask everybody, during this time of, of, of silence and prayer, just to sit in your seat and just pray, we've got a lot to pray for, this is the official last day of summer, did you know that? You know what happens tomorrow on this campus? 2,000 students are going to come back. And some of them are going to be Christians. And this, this, is, this is not a Christian school. There's lots of opportunities to live on mission here. And there's also lots of opportunity to fuel the desires of the flesh. We need to pray. Pray for the faculty, for the teachers, for the leaders, the administrators. Pray for the students that are here. Pray for safety over this campus. Pray for our students in this Church that are going back to school tomorrow. Um, just a new rhythm for a lot of families. A lot of you are teachers. You've been doing teacher prep. Meet the teacher now. Tomorrow is the first official day. So we've got a lot to be praying for. And I want to use this time today to do that. We have a prayer team in the back. If you don't want to go back there, you can just stay in your seat and pray. I'm going to pray. And then our worship team is going to come. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you did the hardest work. You did the hardest work. Uh, of what it takes to kill sin, Lord. You, you settled the debt. The only sin we could ever kill is a forgiven sin, and our sins have been forgiven. forgiven. Uh, they have been atoned for. They have been covered. You have given us a, a, a ro the robe, the perfect, pure, spotless robe of your righteousness, Lord, by faith, as a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. You gave it out of sheer grace and mercy, and we thank you for that. And now, we are not debtors to the flesh. We don't want to go back and enter again into dangerous and, and sinful and risky uh, habits and, and rhythms and lifestyle choices, Lord. We want to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Help us to do that. Hear our prayers right now, Lord. I pray if anyone is here and they don't even know what this means, all their life they've always just said yes to, to, to indulging the flesh. They've said yes to an impulse. They've said yes to a passion, whether it was good or evil. They've never, they've never experienced complete deliverance. And, and, and rescue from their sin, I pray this would be the day that they would call out to you to forgive them. They would repent. They would turn. They would know that Jesus Christ offers them rest. He offers them cleansing. He offers them hope and forgiveness and peace with God and reconciliation. If they will turn, I pray they would do that today. Be with us now, Lord, as we pray and worship you and, and ask for, for your help and, and your protection and safety on this campus for the students, for the teachers, and help us to ruthlessly and relentlessly and relationally put to death the deeds of the body by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, Lord, you're my shepherd. You make me Righteousness to me. Though I walk 
announcements and we'll have our charge and, and you'll be free to go. The um, Tommy mentioned the discipleship groups already. It's one of those things that we have um, no set guidelines, I guess you would call. Uh, you're kind of free to do that, but it's small groups and we just, it's, it's more about encouraging you what to do than, uh, than telling you what to do. So if you can grab a couple of people that, uh, as Tommy says, what we have in common is Jesus, and just get together and do whatever you want to do to talk about Jesus. Confess, sing, memorize scripture, go for walks, whatever. But we would do encourage you to, to do that, and it's uh, organic. It, Tommy says it's uh, kind of grown itself. Uh, secondly, there is a... Each quarter there is a month that has five Wednesdays in it, and so when this is this is the month, and so the fifth Wednesday will be um, coming up in a couple of weeks, and um, we will have a prayer gathering. We've not uh, confirmed the location yet, but that will be on our website, and uh, just uh, stay tuned for more. Our third announcement, uh, this is something that's, that's close to my heart um, and several others here in, in this congregation, um, we work with a, two groups uh, work together, Samaritan's Purse and a group called Beyond the Storm. And we kind of follow disasters around the country and go there and help people recover from uh, whatever disaster has, has taken place recently in their community. This um, 
next week we will be going up to uh, Jackson, Kentucky to work with uh, the people that went through the flood about a month ago. If you've watched anything on the national news, you've seen that um, that's been a, a terrible tragedy. And so we are heading up there. That's not the only trip I'm sure that we'll be taking this year. Uh, but if you are interested in going on a trip like that where we get to help people out to recover from, from devastating storms, um, but we also, the most important thing we do is we share the love of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Jesus for them that week. And so if you have any interest in that, you can see me, you can see Bill or Christy, you can see um, Fran and, and Sally. Uh, again, there's several of us that, that have been on these trips, and you can also scan that QR code, and it'll, it'll give you some more information about it as well. And finally, let's do our, if you'll stand with me, we'll do our charge. If you will, say this along with me. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me a spirit to equip me, word to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I spread, I spread, pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. <laughs>